You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Thank you so much for coming on such a warm evening. Um, I'm Venetia. I'm the program coordinator at M Pavilion. This is M Pavilion, if you're not familiar with it. Um, it's an architecture commission and we're open until February. And we have hundreds of free events on until February, ranging from dance workshops to talks and we're really excited to be collaborating with MTC for the first time ever. Um, and there's another play reading, well, there's a play reading with MTC happening next Thursday. So if you'd like to come, please do. And grab one of these programs as well um, from the kiosk. And also, we'd like to start by acknowledging the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet this evening. The Yalakut Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kula Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and emerging. Thank you. I'll hand it over to Chris. Uh, thank you, Venetia. Good evening. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for bearing with us in the heat. Hopefully, in about 10 minutes, the sun will go off the seats. And do feel free to come and join us over here. It's kind of, no doubt, very cool on the uh, concrete over there. But it'd uh, be nice to have some people closer. Look at you thinking on your, thinking on your butts, getting down on the astro, the soft astro turf. Uh, hello, everyone. My name's Chris Mead. I'm literary director of Melbourne Theatre Company. Um, it's my very great pleasure to welcome Lila Neugebauer here as our University of Melbourne McGeorge Fellow. Uh, it's a fantastic and quite visionary uh, fellowship program where... Um, a couple left their house to the university and were able to fill the house with visiting artists once a year. Uh, we've had uh, writers like Joe Penhall and Simon Stevens here, uh, and it's a fantastic thrill to have Lila working with us this year. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Brett Sheehy, Artistic Director of Melbourne Theatre Company, Virginia Lovett for letting it happen, um, and also thanks to Sam and Venetia at... at um, and in Pavilion for reaching out to us to ask us actually to be here to talk to people. So much of the work that we do in the literary program at Melbourne Theatre Company is kind of hidden, mysterious, confusing, and that's just what it's like for us every day, really. But it's lovely to be able to share some of that work with people uh, in real time and to really get under the hood of what makes new plays work and think about how storytelling functions in this late capitalist society. I don't know, Lila has a particular point of view on that, but we'll get there later. Um, to introduce Lila, if you don't know her work, she's an Obie Drama Desk and Princess Grace award-winning director. Her recent credits include Christopher Shin's Dying City, Kenneth Lonergan's Waverley Gallery, Annie Baker's The Antipodes and The Aliens, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' Everybody, Edward Albee's The Sandbox, Maria Irene Fornes's Drowning, Adrian Kennedy's Funny House of a Negro, A.R. Gurney's The Wayside Murder Inn, Sarah DeLapp's The Wolves, Egg Kugler's Kill Floor, Mike Bartlett's An Intervention, Amy Herzog's After the Revolution and 4,000 Miles, Zoe Kazan's After the Blast, Trudy and Max in Love. The list goes on. Lucas Nath's Red Speedo, Dan LaFranc's Troublemaker, uh, a play by Mallory Abaddon, Oh Guru Guru Guru. So many things. Uh, Lila is an alumna of the Drama League, Soho Rep Writer-Director Lab, Lincoln Centre Theatre Directors Lab, a former Ensemble Studio Theatre member, New George's Affiliated Artist, and New York Theatre Workshop Usual Suspect. Hey, welcome to Australia. So the format, I'll ask Lila questions for half an hour or 40 minutes. We're wrapping up at seven, so there'll be time... Uh, for you guys to ask questions in the last 15 minutes or so. Uh, I talk a lot, so 
my colleagues are here, they'll do that, tell me to stop talking um, uh, if I'm asking too many questions. But I want to start flashy first. Let's start on Broadway, Leila Neugebauer. Um, as you, some of you may know, uh, she had her Broadway debut with uh, a beautiful play by Kenneth Lonergan called Waverly Gallery. Uh, and it was one of those extraordinary kind of beautiful meeting points between high art but also high commerce. Uh, it had a, an, an astonishing cast that included Elaine May, Lucas Hedges, Joan Allen, Michael Cera, and of course it's written by Kenneth Lonergan. Um, you know, it's effectively theatre, high art, royalty. Um, it was produced by Scott Rudin, and in fact, Lila got a text as we were talking this morning or this afternoon that Daniel Day-Lewis was in the house last night. <laughs> uh, so I just wanted to start with that play. How was it to, to work on Broadway for the first time and to work with those kind of commercial constraints, but also in a play that you love? Um, oh, hi, everybody. Uh, I'm just going to be the third person to say thanks for being here. It's terribly hot, but I've heard there are popsicles. They look really good. Um, working on Broadway. Uh, I think I was saying earlier to these wonderful students that we met, I think, um, or we were talking about it yesterday, you know, when you're working on a large commercial platform, fundamentally there are, y you have to take into account to some extent the higher financial stakes and constraints of what you are making, but fundamentally your job is the same if you are the director, um, which is to pay attention to the work and protect the work. So to some extent, the, the beauty of getting to do this play that I love deeply and profoundly with a group of truly astonishing actors is that I just got to make a play that I love. Um, and it just happens that I mean, we, we are actually in sort of the third smallest Broadway house, which is lovely for the play. It's a really intimate room. But the difference fundamentally is that you're doing it for about 900 people a night, except about three, rather than about 300 or 400, which is what you're used to doing off-Broadway. Um, uh, but yeah, so it, it, it was well, sort of a great time. I suppose there are a couple of segments to the question. What is it to work with a Broadway producer like Scott Rudin? What is it to work, work with an extraordinary actress? And I don't know how many of you know Elaine May. Um, she uh, worked with Mike Nichols, of course, with An Evening with uh, Elaine May and Mike Nichols. She's a brilliant, brilliant improv artist, uh, an astonishing actor. But then also worked with kind of Hollywood royalty like Michael Cera, Lucas Hedges. So there you go, th a three-parter. Yeah, I mean, again, the reality is that the, the good fortune of the circumstance was that all of these people are just, they are artists and humans of extraordinary ability. Um, and so that they also happen to be, I guess, Hollywood royalty feels conveniently to me at this point sort of incidental um, because they're just fabulous people who are deeply wonderful at what they do. Um, you know, um, sometimes when you do a play in New York on that kind of a commercial platform, um, there is the impression that you sort of might have to make certain kinds of choices based on, again, the sort of optics or financial implications. And in this case, really there was not a single artistic decision that we were put in a position to have to make that we didn't ultimately believe in. Um, and that really is a credit to a very excellent producer that I worked with and he is also a demanding man, but I think um, in all of the best ways and in the ways that I am. Um, so I, I think we were just extremely fortunate that it was an extraordinary group of people. Um, so I, I got lucky. And also it's worth pointing out that Elaine May is 86. So that must have put a particular prism on which the way you worked with the actors and with her, and at the story is a, a woman uh, who's uh, becoming, you know, she's got dementia and she's becoming aphasic. So she, you know, it's learning lines is always hard if anyone's ever done it. Doing it at 86, I imagine, must have been a very particular challenge. 
Yeah, but she's incredible. And also one of, you know, it's there's a gift in hiring essentially the greatest comic improvisational artist of her generation and of like the century. Um, uh, in that, um, that woman's not going to drop the ball. Um, and uh, her capacity for invention is sort of limitless in every possible sense, which is really what you look for in any actor. Um, and with Elaine, it's just sort of amplified to the furthest possible degree that you could imagine. It's, it's kind of thrilling to watch her keep everyone else on their toes. The last time I went, I saw her catch Lucas Hedges getting off a line in the first scene. <laughs> and she sort of like improvised and riffed to bring him back and sort of caught him. Like she caught him falling, like it was really beautiful to watch an 86 year old catch a 21 year old. Uh, it was great. She does have an understudy though. Yeah, but that she's that she's a very brilliant understudy who actually is an amazing actor named Maureen Anderman who interestingly in the the, the play's original production it was first done off Broadway in New York in 2000. Um, Elaine's understudy originated the role that Joan Allen is playing now, um, which is a very beautiful convening for everyone involved. Um, but I poor wonderful brilliant Maureen Anderman. I don't think she's ever going on. Um, I, I don't. I think Elaine's. Um, yeah, she, it would take a lot. Eight shows a week. Okay, let's set back in time. Uh, Lila has publicly said a number of times that she has no professional training for the job she does now. How on earth did you fall into directing at such a high level if you didn't learn and get an MFA and study, study, study? Uh, like many people, um, uh, by doing it. Um, and there's a, there's a longer version of my origin story, which is probably not of tremendous interest to this collection of people, but the upshot is that from the time I was maybe 16, I knew that I wanted to direct plays. Um, but my parents aren't artists, and um, I, I sort of didn't have a conception of it as a profession. Um, and so didn't study it, but sort of ended up spending all my time in school doing it. Um, but I was an English major. Um, <clears throat> and while I was in school, I had sort of figured out that the idea of working with living playwrights is what seemed most interesting to me. There was a playwrights festival at my college, um, but didn't really know who was alive and writing plays in America who wasn't David Mamet or Tony Kushner. So I started by working in some literary departments at theaters around the country. Um, so I worked uh, at a theater called Steppenwolf in Chicago in their literary department, um, a theater called Berkeley Rep on the West Coast, and um, at Actors Theater of Louisville, which does the biggest new play festival in, in America called the Humana Festival. And then made my, my way back to New York and did a lot of assisting while also doing my own work on the side and um, assisted for a number of years also to sort of make my living, but to learn. Um, and then gradually that assisting phased out. So I, I was just a person who I think uh, wanted to be in the room uh, a, as much as possible. And we, we had a great session with some of the uh, graduates and almost graduates, graduands from the Victorian College of the Arts this morning. And you spoke, you know, with great insight into how it was to create your own methodology, as it were, but also that it's the kind of methodology that's entirely bespoke for each play. Just learning from great directors and then being able to kind of find your own way through that. Yeah, I also think, and I'm, I'm, um, I'm pretty agnostic on the question of education in the arts, which is to say I have plenty of colleagues um, who trained in what we do and who considered that time invaluable and met some of their most important collaborators in those contexts, et cetera. I will also say that um, there's an extent to which I think I probably believe, I'm, I'm more convinced that training is vital for actors. <laughs> I think I'm agnostic about it for directors. And um, I'm, I'm 
probably somewhat biased, but but I think there are certain aspects of technique and you know your instrument that I think are developed through training as an actor that can be invaluable if you want to work on the stage. Um, I, I actually feel sort of differently about film and television, um, but but I do think. Um, uh, I, you know, I, of course, I also don't know what they teach in directing classrooms. Although weirdly, I've taught some, um, but I don't know what they teach other people. Um, but my feeling is like there is some aspect of what all of us do if you work in the arts that you can't teach, right? It's just who it's who are you? Um, and there's some aspect of force of personality and point of view and identity that's critical to what you do. And I think anyone who thinks otherwise is sort of kidding themselves um, because fundamentally you're reacting to something in front of you. And I, that's not to say I don't believe in craft. Um. But in a way you had what's a very old fashioned way of learning, which, which makes sense in a kind of theatrical context to the extent that what we do is a craft. And as a, as a playwright is like a wheelwright, somebody who learns to, to bend wood, or a, a dramaturg is like a metallurg, somebody who learns to work with metals. So a director, you know, is apprenticed by those people. And, you know, back in the day, directors were often stage managers who then stepped up and, and started working with the actors because you were that, that outside eye. And I feel like that, that was your pathway to the stage. She agreed. Uh, I said, yes, that, that's back to Shakespearean times when they didn't have directors, but they had stage managers who then became directors. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Lila also has, a, a, she works with a company called The Mad Ones, and it'd be great to hear, as well as working in institutional theatre, on Broadway, on off-Broadway, how is it to work in a completely other way where your time constraints are entirely up to you rather than set by other people? Well, regrettably, they are set. They are set by other people only in the sense that we are a company who sort of didn't set out to be a company, and people just we are a group of people who made a play together, and then people sort of kept asking us to make plays. Um, so the the impetus to make a new play usually arrives when someone says, "Hey, will you do a play for us?" Um, but you got to do it in two years. Um, <laughs> so that's what sort of has happened for the past ten years. Um, but. Um, uh, our process is, uh, it's a, there's sort of an artistic core and there are five of us and the other four perform in the plays and I direct them and we write them all together. Um, so it's a totally idiosyncratic, um, we were all sort of theater mutts when we came together. Some people had more of a background in physical training, some people were sort of more text oriented, some people were more inside out or outside in. Um, and. and um, but discovered quickly a kind of shared sensibility and set of concerns that have deepened over time. Um, and so, um, sort of in terms of what Chris said, I would say the kind of, um, the generative methods that we've used have kind of evolved and deepened over time. Um, and also figuring out um, uh, how to expedite uh, how unwieldy um, a, a sort of democratic generative process can be, has been part of that growth as well. Um, but really the sort of process of creating has been tailored to what a play has kind of revealed itself to want to be in the course of making it. Um, so no two processes look exactly alike. And how many shows have the Mad Ones made and have they been particular objects of fascination by one member and then shared? Or it's all of you kind of zeroing in on a particular idea? No, it's sort of not the kind of company where somebody who I guess would normally be the director would come in and say, I want to make a play about this. It's really that the, f the space begins as a kind of free associative communal space where we're thinking like, what's on our minds right now and what are we thinking about? And people are bringing in articles or, uh, you know, YouTube clips uh, or, 
you know, a biography that they read about so-and-so from which some kind of kernel emerges that I think um, checks off a, a different box for different people. Someone in the, in the company is very visual and usually responds to an image. Um, I'm the person who sort of responds to a kind of driving question that's at the core of it. Someone else really responds to a character they can identify, et cetera. Um, but I think all of them have been um, triggered by the kind of inciting kernel that sparks something for everyone, for all five of us. Um, otherwise, I think we wouldn't know how to proceed. I'm interested in, this is a more conceptual question, I suppose. Often when I work uh, with people from the UK, there's a kind of, uh, not exactly a mad rush, but there's a kind of cultural imperative to find the new writer. Who will the new Shakespeare be? And, um, you know, so there's a, there's a pressure and a joy, you know, for who's the next Carol Churchill. Uh, there will never be a next Carol Churchill. Or who's the next in America, the, the new Miller or the new Susan Laurie Parks. I wonder, given that you're in that world at the, very, at the very pointy end of that, whether you feel that pressure or it's just pure fascination that you're able to, you know, a, as a taste maker, effectively now, you're in a very powerful position... Uh, whether you feel that cultural weight or that cultural responsibility. No, uh, I, uh, I don't feel pressure. I just feel appetite and I feel curiosity. Um, so, and I think it's such, that's such a, um, I think the word responsibility is a beautiful word, which I think we all ought to feel uh, in whatever form we work or world we work in. Um, but mostly I think I'm just driven by curiosity. Um, and so my desire to meet new writers whose work I respond to is also operating from a place of greediness, um, that I want to be around their minds um, and I want to be challenged by them and um, I want to have the opportunity to question them and to know their minds and, and to also participate in a sort of creative athletic act with them. Uh, perfect segue. Thank you for mentioning athleticism. Because, uh, of course, what we're looking for is ferocity and muscularity of writing, but it's a good uh, segue to Sarah DeLapp's play, The Wolves, uh, a play about a girls' soccer team. It's the kind of extraordinarily rare thing, the thing that dreams are made of in a way, that uh, it, a play that premiered off-Broadway, um, had a sold-out, critically acclaimed, acclaimed run, followed by a sold-out return engagement produced in association with Scott Rudin. Uh, the Wolves won the American Playwriting Foundation's inaugural Relentless Award, was a finalist for the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize and the Yale Prize, and I think the Pulitzer Prize as well. Uh, it was published in 2017. Uh, the playwright, Sarah DeLapp, wrote it at 25. It was her first play. She's halfway through a playwriting MFA at Brooklyn College. Kind of, Yeah, I know she's done now. Um, and she said in an interview uh, in 2017 that she saw the Diane Arbus exhibit at the Met Brewer which she thought was amazing, and I was walking around and writing down all of her quotes that are hung up above all of the portraits. There's this quote, and Diane Arbus said, I don't press the shutter, the image does, and it's like being gently clobbered. I feel that way about this play. I didn't make the play, the play did. That's what Sarah DeLapp said. Is that true? That the play made itself? No, I, I think she wrote it. No, she, she definitely wrote the play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, I'm very moved. That quote is incredibly moving. I mean, it's incredibly moving. And also her verb choices are like spectacular. Jesus Christ. 
I mean, clobber, it's beautiful. That language is gorgeous and really stunning. And I think what's beautiful about what Sarah is saying is I think one often has the feel, I don't know, I'm not a writer, uh, or I am, but in a strange way with my company, but, um, or I'm an adapter and a, a co-writer. But, um, you know, you hear different generative artists speak about the idea of, you know, like the, the image of the sculptor, right? who's chipping away because the, the image, it, you know, the object is there. It just has to, it's revealing itself, it has to be found. Um, so, I mean, I'm very moved by that quote, but um, I, I definitely watched her write it. So, <laughs> it also very much came from her mind and her creative impulse and her life experience, um, which is unique and personal and remarkable. But perhaps share with us the, the genesis of that play. How did that play come to you and how did you get it from you know, for a, an unknown playwright to make it so far? Um, is it a function of New York? Is it is it your burgeoning power as a director or is it that people are desperate to hear that story? The thing is that the play's real good. Um, I mean, I knew this writer socially. Uh, she's also dating a playwright who's a collaborator and friend of mine and I met her socially first and we hit it off and... Um, she'd written this play and it was going to have a reading at a small downtown theater company and she sent it to me and I was just saying this yesterday, I read the first five pages and I wrote her back, don't send this to anyone else. Um, <laughs> because I already knew I wanted to direct it. Um, I spent, soccer was a hugely formative part of my own youth and identity formation and I was so taken with the voice of the play and the characters and I knew immediately that the play had to be staged as a kind of spectacularly choreographed kinesthetic event um, and uh, you know then made it to the end of the play and still felt the same way even more so um, and then um, we sort of spent a year developing it and we did a kind of workshop production of it and then ultimately this company picked it up and then I mean I really think it's the life force of the play people saw it and kind of lost their minds for it and that's all about it's a testament to the play and also we found it, it's a company of nine young women and one adult woman um, I mean they're all adults now but um, it's not it's nine teenage girls on a soccer field and each scene is them warming up for a game and it's them sort of like talking simultaneously. Um, and, and then something kind of happens. Um, but I just think the kind of velocity of the writing, the point of view, the voice is so clear, it's so bright in that play. And I think it was kind of undeniable to anybody who saw it, even people who maybe didn't love it. Um, uh, we were talking earlier, either today or yesterday, uh, and Lila made the point that um, one of the great joys of working in the theatre is that we can terrify ourselves and go out of our way to do what's difficult. And I thought it would be great if you could tell or talk us through two of those recent experiences of terrifying yourself. One, working on Brandon Jacobs Jenkins's play, Everybody, but also on uh, Annie Baker's The Antipodes. Two very different versions of what's possible in our medium and only possible when working in the theatre. Sure. Um, so uh, Chris is speaking about two collaborations I had on first productions with two American writers named Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and Annie Baker. And these are two people who are kind of longtime friends of mine also. Um, and and they're both people who um, had a kind of wonderful residency at Signature um, at this theater in New York. Um, so they had a commitment to produce a play that they had not written. Um, and they both, interestingly, with both of these projects, which happened the same season, this is a couple years ago, came to me with sort of an idea, not a play, and I signed on site unseen because um, they're people I want to work with uh, so unequivocally. Um, and Brandon's play, thank you, that Chris is talking about, was um, kind of radical reimagining of the medieval morality play Everyman, 
which is about the summoning of every man to death. Um, and the premise that this really imaginative and provocative writer came to me with, among a number of premises, was that um, he wanted to incorporate the element of chance into the, the structure of the event. Um, and he also wanted to do a kind of contemporary vernacular translation and was reimagining the play in all sorts of other wonderful, bizarre, and fabulous imaginative ways. Um, but, uh, and he also wanted to be sure that, um, in part, he was interested in the element of chance, in part, right, because, um, you know, uh, death is the great unknown. Um, <laughs> it's, the, it's the largest element of chance we all face at some point or another, and it's real chance when we face it. Um, he also didn't want to distill the identity of this everyman into the body of a single actor who necessarily has an age, a race, a gender, a sexual orientation, et cetera, presumably. Um, and so long developmental process of many explorations lead to a production in which there's a company of eight actors and at the center of it is a company of five who essentially memorized the entire play and then drew their role out of a lottery every night. So the five of them didn't know which role they would play on a given night. They drew it out of a lottery. One person was everyman. Everybody was the character's name. Everybody. Um, one person played friendship, one person played kinship, one person played stuff. Um, that's like the goods, that's the scene with the riches. Um, uh, what's the last track? Kinship, cousin, cousinship, yeah. Um, uh, so that was that project. And then Annie Baker's play The Antipodes, what about that? Um, Annie also came to me with sort of an idea. She had um, spent a period of time in a television writer's room it had been a very bizarre experience for her. She was, in part, it was significant to her because she was the only woman in a room full of men. Um, and she wanted to write a play, um, uh, which I think was sort of um, a kind of feminist screed <laughs> uh, about the pernicious forces of late stage capitalism and storytelling. But I, I think the play was also kind of like a satire of a Hollywood writer's room, um, kind of, sort of, uh, but ultimately not. And really sort of about like our endless return to and need for story. Um, you made the comment about it being terrifying and wanting to go into rooms that were almost impossible. I suppose what, what was it about each of those projects that made them... I mean, obviously, once you introduce the aleatory, I mean, theatre is always aleatory, but what was it about that project that was terrifying? And then similarly, you know, there's a few people critiquing late-stage capitalism at this time. What was it about that project that was actually terrifying? Well, that's a, probably an extreme word. I mean, I think what, I, what, what, when I'm saying, or if I said terrifying, I sort of mean like I'm interested in processes where I can't map out what's gonna happen in advance. Like I'm interested in, in a degree of unknown inside of a process or inside a production that keeps me sort of agitated um, imaginatively. Um, and I think keeps me adventurous and keeps me questioning and asks me to interrogate both not just the nature of a play, but the nature of the process of making the play. Um, and I think both of those plays for reasons specific to their germination and expression on the page and then in development revealed themselves to require kind of idiosyncratic and very specifically tailored processes. But I think that's interesting to me to think like, how will this demand something new of all of us that we haven't done before to just be outside of our comfort zones? And part of the reason we, we invited Lila to come and join with us is because as you can hear from the plays that she's worked on, they're all often first productions of new plays. Uh, I suppose I would go so far as to uh, characterise you as an expert in working on new plays. 
Why do you think that is? Not my characterising, but how are you an expert? Like, why are you fascinated with the new? Why living place? Well, I've also done some of the ones by the dead guys. And increasingly, I sort of want to, if I'm being honest. I just did an Albie revival this past year. Kenny's play is an old play. We'll, we'll get to Tracy's play had already been done. Okay, but I did it. <laughs> uh, why do I like new plays? Oh, it's sort of what I was saying. I mean, um, you're inventing a new language. You're mapping uncharted territory. Um, which isn't to say that you aren't mapping uncharted territory if you're doing... Uh, you know, an Arthur Miller play, you really can be. It's like, what story do you want to tell inside those plays? There's a lot of different stories you can tell inside the Crucible. Um, uh, but I think there's also um, the kind of dramaturgical parts of my brain are so lit up in the collaboration with the writer. Um, and I think for me, um, I've, I've found that, that conversation with a writer, figuring out um, how to, it, there's a kind of midwifery. Is that how you, is that the version of that word? Is that a word? Yeah, there's a kind of midwifery in it that I find extremely meaningful and kind of creatively exhilarating. Um, and I think the, the kinds of questions you get to ask yourself when you're really trying to figure out like how does this want to make meaning and what are we really after feel kind of robust and creatively athletic at a level that is just very exhilarating for me. Um, but Having done an, a kind of a number, a, a few more revivals these past few years and with a few more upcoming, um, I, I will confess, like, the spaces, they're quite different and they're not different at all. Um, uh, so, yeah, those things I think are, I'm, always, I'm looking for everything I just said in any room I'm in. Well, there's a, a beautiful book for anyone who's interested in theatre called Letters to George by uh, director Max Stafford Clark, who had been running the Royal Court from 1979 to 1993 or so. Uh, and he then did a revival of a George Farquhar play, and the book is about his letters to George. It's called Letters to George, where he was really cross about how annoying and inflexible working with well, a dead playwright. So he wrote him a letter every day about why the play doesn't work. Um, so why don't you just change it? The guy's <laughs> dead. I'm like, was the estate involved? <laughs> He's well dead. <laughs> but um, he came to realise that the play was smarter than him, that actually... You know, he was trying to fashion what didn't need to be refashioned. And I'm wondering, with some of those dead guys, who are the people that interest you? Um, you don't have to name names especially, but... Uh, and we've talked about it a little bit, but, you know, how far dead interests you? Do you want to go back to the Greeks, the Romans? No. I know you went to the medievalists. No. Well, I really want to do Williams. There's, like, a couple of Williams plays I really want to do that I'm trying to do in the next few years. He's sort of been on my mind a lot lately. But he's sort of always on my mind. Um, why? Miller, why? why is he why? always on my mind? I mean, how can you not lose your mind over Tennessee Williams' work? I mean, it's like, I mean, A Streetcar Named Desire and The Glass Menagerie, I'm like, I could do those plays every year for the next 10 years, and I think there would still be depths that I would be trying to plumb. I mean, I think like what that man had to say about that inside of us that our culture deems transgressive and the sort of coercive implications for all of us <laughs> of discovering that you're, des or experiencing your desire as transgressive in any format. Um, and I think like the way that race and class are implicate, I, I just find, I think like of, of our American writers, for me, William's work sort of vibrates at a frequency that I find like sort of unbearably immediate um, constantly. Um, Chekhov. I'd really like to do Vanya. 
and Three Sisters. Or actually, and most of all, The Seagull. That's the one I really want to do. A um, little bit of Miller, but really Williams right now is who's on my mind. Okay, my final question to you, Lila. So start you know, thinking on your question, what they might be. We've got about 10 minutes or so left. But it's an anecdotal one, uh, and it's a bit mushy, but it's kind of sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just thinking about why you work to tell stories for a living. That's your job. It's such an unusual and kind of extraordinary job. You're not doing it for money or reputation or fame. And I'm just wondering when in rehearsal recently or a moment in a play, what that moment was where you were reminded of this is why I do this. There's a moment between actors, a moment of beauty, a moment of grace, a moment of transcendence in something that you've made or something that you've seen about why theatre. Oh, no. <laughs> I've broken. Oh God, to identify a single moment. God, can we ask some questions? And then I'm gonna, we're going to put this you on can, the back burner of my mind. You can make a list. We're going to let want. it marinate. And then I'm going to come up with the one that's worth sharing. That's a very high stakes question, Chris, because it puts a pressure on whoever gets featured in this anecdote. Oh, my God. Grace. Yeah. Well, the truth is I see it everywhere. I mean, it, I see it everywhere. But I'll, I'll just think about that. Maybe someone has a question that can derail us for a moment. Pop your hand in the air, yeah. What have you always wanted to direct and never been given the chance to? Well, I think I started listing them. I mean, I, and I think given the chance, like I think I'm about to have some chances, but I do, I think like the top of the bucket list right now is Streetcar, Glass Menagerie, and actually A Doll's House. I really want to do A Doll's House. But I think some of those things are about gonna happen soon. Um, but I, I also confess I'm a person right now who's starting to work in other mediums. I started working in television a lot. I really like to make a film. So hopefully eventually someone will give me a chance to do that too. Um, looks like that might happen. Uh, are you able to make any observations on similarities and differences between Melbourne and New York for new playwrights and new directors? My confession is that I feel woefully, woefully undereducated about people writing here. And and part that I mean that's why I'm so thrilled that I'm here. Um, so I'm I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that I feel very early in my education. I mean I've been here four days. I'm pretty crazy about your city so far. These little lanes. I mean, they're wild. It's like you could miss so much. I'm missing so much every street I walk down because I'm walking down the wrong goddamn lane. Like, how, it's like, how can you, they should just, someone should give you a list of like, here are the 12 lanes you've got. Maybe someone can give me that list. Um, but so I'm embarrassed to say I feel I don't know yet. And I, in some ways, I think I'm here to try to find out. Hi, Lilith. Um, can you just explain, explain a little bit about your process um, when you direct? I'm, I heard an interview with you and you said you sort of change according to whatever play you're directing. I think that's what I understood, but maybe you could talk a little bit about, about it. Thank you for listening to an interview with me. Um, yeah, I, uh, I guess my feeling is like there are certain aspects to a kind of traditional rehearsal process that um, usually work for me. <laughs> Usually when you're doing a play where people talk to each other, it's usually helpful when you start at the table, I find. You start with some table work and you sit around the table and, you know, if you're dealing with a play that traffics in psychological realism, you're usually trying to figure out some of the basic circumstantial questions about the characters involved and the both immediate circumstances that they find themselves in and whatever, you know, longer term circumstances allowed them to, that, that feel pertinent to the matters of the play. And then you're sort of figuring out what feel like the most important questions probably, but trying not to answer any of them. Um, and, you know, then you usually start staging. 
people usually still have scripts in their hands. And then eventually those scripts start to go away and you're kind of working and staging and drafting and working and staging. And then in, in America, in the off-Broadway world, you get like two to three weeks of previews and on Broadway you usually get three to four. And to me, that's where you really know what you're making when you put it in front of people. Um, like I don't think you really know what you're making until you meet your audience. Um, and I always feel like when I sit down at first preview, I'm like, it's, I've, actually, I've put my glasses on. Um, but I think maybe what you're referring to or whatever I was babbling about in that interview is that for whatever reason, I feel like I've done a bunch of plays where it just seemed like precisely what I just described was somehow inadequate. And so whatever I was doing bore some resemblance to that, but like in the case of the Wolves, like, well, I had to train them as a soccer team. Conveniently, it was like the great fulfillment of my dream and that I got to be a soccer coach and a director at one time. But so, you know, the first production of the play that we did, that, that play, we did, um, out of town on the Vassar College campus in Poughkeepsie. So there's all this green and it was in the summer. And so every day I made them run. And then we trained in the field. And then we went to rehearse the play. So that was sort of idiosyncratic. Um, although someone was telling me, is it Ian Rickson? Someone was, my friend Josh Hamilton did this Wally Shawn play at the National. And they played badminton. And their, their play had nothing to do with badminton. And I was like, damn it, those British directors can get away with anything. I was like, I should just make people play sports, no matter the play. Because when you get people to sweat together, like something else happens. Um, so maybe I'll just start applying that. But anyway, um, or I did this play by Tracy Letts, um, this American writer Tracy Letts, a play called Mary Page Marlowe. And um, it's a cast of 18, and the, the sort of conceit of the play is that the lead character, Mary Page Marlowe, who we encounter spanning ages 12 to 69, is played by five different actresses. And so we had a very idiosyncratic process there in terms of creating a single character with five women. Um, and they were sort of at all of each other's rehearsals. We did a lot of voice work together and kind of physical work together. And then a lot of kind of broken out scene work just with, there was sort of a lot of weird stuff we did just with the Mary Pages that was like pretty moving and incredible. Um, but I guess that's my way of saying, I feel like my job is to figure out what kind of a process a play demands and invites um, and to kind of seize the opportunity to tailor a process to the needs of a play and the, the people performing it. Or, or the dramaturgical needs. I, oh, sorry, and the, I guess the other thing I would say, Sarah, you're on deck, is that like, I guess because I feel that um, the the work that I'm drawn to, I wouldn't know how to characterize it. Like, I'm drawn to work a great range of styles and subjects. So I've, I'm drawn to work that can be hypernaturalistic or wildly expressionistic. I've done two-handers. I've done 25-person ensemble pieces. And so my feeling is like, it would be hard for me to generalize about a process because plays that take different forms, they just require different things of you. It's sort of a leading on question, I guess, um, since you've done so much work with Annie Baker, but just how you um, approach her use of time in the rehearsal room. Um, I don't know whether when you worked on um, The Antipodes, that was the first time the play was done. Um, it, are you, how do you work with her on that? Or does she just sort of present it and then you um, discuss it? Or do you just sort of take what she, the rhythm she gives you and work within them? So um, Annie Baker is this American playwright who um, her work, um, she works in kind of like microscopically detailed naturalism that's in fact so hyper attentive in its investment in detail that it, it, there's almost a kind of surreality to what's happening often, um, even though the plays really present on the page and theoretically to people seeing it initially as naturalism. But there's often something that's like a little bit cosmic about what's happening because of um, how closely she's looking at things. Um, 
she is a person who writes in an incredibly specific way and who really scores on the page. That said, because that was a first production, we were learning a lot in real time. And I think there was plenty of time where we thought like, you know, for Annie, a beat, a pause, a silence, and a long silence mean four very different things and therefore very specific things. And I definitely, you know, certainly as we were figuring out the play, text was evolving and silence was evolving. So I think we were discovering like, oh, that's not a pause, that is a beat. <laughs> or like, that's a long silence. And I would think, and I would say, we can have a sidebar about this later, the, the question of time in the Antipodes was actually like an incredibly critical one from the perspective of the flow of the entire production. And in fact, I felt that my job was to be um, in a way that I, felt had to work on the audience subliminally, but in can, I, I had to distort people's perception of time. And so the production deployed some sort of, deployed sleight of hand and it deployed like incredibly microscopically choreographed physicality. Um, but that was not legible to an audience, but was I, really working I think on, on them viscerally and on their kind of unconsciouses. Um, but more about that later if you're interested. <laughs> yeah. so, Developed, developed, but also she's very specific. Uh, I just want to say, first of all, I saw the Waverly Gallery and yeah, I loved it. It's a play that I know really well and I felt like I was seeing things for the first time and experiencing things for the first time. And I wanted to ask, this could be a really fucking stupid question because I'm not a director. Um, when you're working with someone who does have 60 years experience, is that different to working with someone, an actor who has three years experience or does it depend on the person? I mean, sure. I Yes, it's different, but also in the sense that like working with one actor with three years of experience is often different from a different actor with three years of experience. So I'm being I'm like being a little bit coy in the sense that like the amount of history that Elaine May carries in her body is really, really different than like Lucas Hedges, who walks into a room with like a shitload of raw talent, but like not really any technique. And I wouldn't be betraying him to say that. He would say that himself. He dropped out of school six months in. So Lucas has an extraordinary amount of raw talent, but he's still figuring out what he can rely on. Um, and he's building those muscles in real time and he knows that. And it was the second play he'd ever done. Whereas Elaine spent years surviving on stage with nothing but her imagination and a scene partner. So those are just different toolboxes. And they're because they're both artists of extraordinary ability, it's joyful for me to get to meet each of them where they are with the toolbox they have um, and figure out what we need to employ and deploy for our work at hand. You've spoken about a few of the dead playwrights you want to work with, but how about some of the living playwrights you want to work with? Who are, who are some of those that you haven't worked with already? Amy Herzog is an American playwright who's also a friend who I'd love to work with. Um, I feel really lucky in who I get to work with. So I'm thinking... <laughs> uh, let me think. This might take a minute for me to actually answer accurately and in a targeted way. It's sort of embarrassing, isn't it? Who do I want to work with that I haven't worked with? There's got to be some Brits, too. Um, someone want to come up with another question while my slow machine of a brain is it revealing itself to be devoid of new imagination? Oh, there's a young guy named Jeremy Harris who's just having his first two productions in New York this year, who I'm really excited about, who I'd love to find something with. Um, he has a play on right now in New York called Slave Play. Um, I'm thinking, yeah. Um, this sort of relates to the last question. If you 
want to work with some Brits, which British playwrights do you admire? Like you mentioned Carol Churchill. Yeah, she's the one. She's the I one. I want to do all her plays. What about I Debbie Tucker Green? Oh, big fan. Yeah, me too. Big fan. Big, big fan. Nick Payne. I'm, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna start poking them out there as I come up. Nick Payne is a British writer. I mean, I am about to work with him, but like, I, I really love him. Um, I think he's wonderful. Uh, something that comes up a lot for us and probably for you in New York as well is who gets to tell whose stories. Uh, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So, for example, um, if you're asked to direct something that's written by someone of a different cultural context. Has that happened to you, or what is your opinion on what's going on in that conversation at the moment? Um, I'm thinking and talking about that kind of question and a kind of constellation of questions that I think surround that question often. Um, it feels hard to generalize about. Um, you know, um, let's see, four years ago, something like that, I was, I mean, here's just an example. Four years ago, I was approached by Signature Theatre um, to direct an evening of basically their one acts. Um, and this, this is a theatre in New York, um, a really incredible theatre, um, that they're now 28 years old. And this was on the occasion of their, I guess it was three years ago, something like that, three, four, um, on the occasion of their 25th anniversary. And that theatre began as a theatre which thought we'll do, each year we'll do the work of a single playwright. Um, in order to give people more context for a writer's work. And in honor of their 25th anniversary, they were revisiting three iconic voices from the American avant-garde who had been very important to their legacy um, in an evening. Um, and the three plays were a play by Maria Irene Fornes called Drowning. She's an incredible Cuban playwright, American, she, incredible writer. If you don't know her work, please read all of her plays. She just passed away within the past month. Um, uh, a short Edward Albee play and a play by Adrian Kennedy called Funny House of a Negro, which is like a, a profoundly seminal work in the black arts movement. Um, and the founding artistic director, who was a mentor of mine, called me and said, I want you to do this evening. And I said, um, this is truly astonishing. Why are you calling me to direct Funny House of a Negro? Why aren't you calling a black woman to direct this play? Um, uh, because that work is really like, it's seminal and canonical. And it is a really difficult, violent, in a way, play um, that um, that I, I that was my question. Um, and there's a longer conversation there. And in part, for him, it had to do with the. I think if he had only been doing that play, his thought process might have been different. It was a part of an evening of three plays. Um, and I think I wrestled with my um, with my company of actors in terms of how how to create a space for them. Um, that play asks a lot of really difficult questions of the company who performs it and asks them to wrestle with aspects of their experience and what they've come across in the world that um, are just tremendously difficult. Um, and I felt very aware that like, uh, I was probably not the correct person to shepherd that conversation. Um, there's such a much longer version of this conversation we could have. I think the upshot is that my, I felt wildly grateful to be in that room with those actors. Um, I felt wildly grateful for what they were willing to share with me and go through with me. Um, that, that evening, that some of the, those are some of the hardest plays I've ever done. They're incredibly, those works are singular and uh, uh, abstract, absurd, expressionistic, hallucinogenic. They're crazy, phantasmagoric plays in their own idiosyncratic ways. And I'm, that I think is some of the best work I've ever done on that evening. I'm most proud of that evening. Um, 
Uh, I'm sorry, the end of this monologue is... Uh, part of what I felt it was on me to navigate in that process is like, how do you, how do you own when you're not the expert? I understood my responsibility in that room and my responsibility to that evening by virtue of my relationship to the institution um, who was really honoring their legacy and a body of work. I would also say that like, I insisted on speaking to the playwright before I took the job and I maintained, sh she doesn't live in New York anymore and that's a long story, she's now in her 80s and we spoke constantly and emailed constantly and I made sure to maintain a very tight line with her um, and I think that was very helpful in empowering me to feel like I could do it. Um, but there are other plays that have come my way that I felt like I was like, I know I'm not the person for this for precisely that reason. Um, but I think it's incredibly nuanced case by case and I think the questions are valid. Tiny, short question. You never, did you ever want to act? Um, I acted when I, for between the ages of about 12 and 16, and I was mostly cast as old ladies and men, and it was all in comic roles. And that's a perfect point to end this Q&A. Thank you so much, and thank you, Lila. Thank you all so much for coming. Thanks. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.